Hello, I'm Jonathan Malloy. I'm a professor of political science at Carleton University, and I hold the Honorable Dick and Ruth Bell Chair in Canadian Parliamentary Democracy. The Bell Chair is pleased to sponsor this talk on racism and anti-racism in Canada, featuring Dr. Annette Isaac and Ms. Amanda Roberts. I want to thank Dr. Isaac for taking the time to share her wisdom and experience. I also want to thank Ms. Roberts for her participation, as well as all her work in making this event happen. I also want to thank Anne Farquharson from the Department of Political Science for her assistance. And now I will turn it over to Amanda Roberts for a conversation with Dr. Annette Isaac. Thank you, Dr. Malloy. Uh, welcome uh, to Stages of Consciousness of Racism, a conversation with Dr. Annette Isaac. Uh, I want to start out, Dr. Isaac and I would like to acknowledge that Carleton University is located on the traditional unceded territories of the Algonquin Nation. As we talk about racism, these questions of inclusion and representation, it's impossible to do so without acknowledging the historic exclusion, silencing and colonial violence perpetrated against the traditional custodians of these lands. This talk with Dr. Annette Isaac is part of the Bell Chair Lecture Series, as Dr. Malloy mentioned. We're going to talk about how racism and anti-racism affect the lives and experiences of Black Canadians. For those who don't know me, I'm Amanda Roberts, and I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Political Science. I study gender and diversity and political theory, and I actually had the pleasure of learning from Dr. Isaac during my undergrad at Carleton. So when the time came to help put together some of the content discussing racism and anti-racist work in Canada and in academia, she was a natural choice. A little bit about Dr. Annette Isaac. She is an author and scholar with experience studying women and gender, feminism in Canada and the developing world, race, ethnicity, globalization, and more. She is co-author of Politics of Race, and in her recent memoir, Missing the Cues, Tales of a Newcomer's Life in Canada, Dr. Isaac shares the subtle messages and hints that most newcomers in Canada tend to miss while building their social and professional lives. She not only studied at Carleton, but she was also an adjunct research professor and then an instructor in political science for a number of years. The structure of this session is modeled on a conversation and we've tried to recreate that as best we can within the, the confines of uh, a Zoom conversation. Dr. Isaac will begin with a statement to frame the discussion and then we'll move to a Q&A, more conversational portion, which we've built uh, based on some themes as suggested by some of my fellow grad students in the department. So I will pass the mic to you, Dr. Isaac, for your opening statement. Hey. Thank you, Amanda. It's a pleasure to speak with Carlton students once again. What a different environment, isn't it? As opposed to being in the classroom, you have to deal with my smile. Um, uh, virally, is that how they call it? Anyway, I do want to thank you, um, uh, thank Professor Jonathan Malloy for the invitation to be part of the Bell Lecture Series. And today I'll be reflecting on my own experience as a Black Canadian in this moment in racism in Canada. The Black Lives Matter movement may be unprecedented, but racism in Canada is not new. Indeed, the recent throne speech identified systemic racism as a priority. So there is or should no longer be any question about whether racism 
exists in Canada, certainly if it ever was. Now, I want to share with you my, my evolving perceptions about racism, which I describe as my three stages of consciousness, starting from my arrival in Canada as a student in 1972, to an academic teaching race and politics, global issues and gender in 2004 at the Carlton, as has just been mentioned in the Department of Political Science. Now, I describe these three stages as one, white welcome from 1972 to 1980. The second stage I uh, describe as you are a visible minority from 1980 to 1995. And the third stage, missing the cues, missed the cues from 1995 to 2004 onwards. Now, I'm just generally going to draw on my experiences from this memoir, but not specifically, just to set the context. And I'll briefly introduce these stages and then elaborate on specific experiences and share with you, which, which I think would be a really lively discussion. But I also recognize that the discussion on racism at the moment is really focused on the justice system. Yet, as I go through this presentation, I realize that this moment is part of ongoing moments of Black struggle, that, which in Canada, in particular, tends to ebb and flow. And I hope to show at the end of the overview how moments in Black struggle at one point connect later on. For me, that connection took place through my university study, because the whole point of this is to understand a little bit um, the experiences of individual uh, Black people in terms of the con context of systemic racism that has been outlined in our throne speech. But first, a biographical introduction, a short one. I'll talk a little bit about the, 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 the word cues, spelled C-U-E-S, that's will be coming up, and a little bit of an explanation about um, systemic racism, which has been talked a lot about, um, but a little bit of explanation about what it can mean. So just a bit of background about myself. Eh? So I arrived here in 1972. I went to the University of Alberta in Edmonton to study languages. Around 1973, the Canadian government declared an amnesty for people who had lived in Canada up to that time, but who did not have resident status. And this included students who were not on government scholarships. So um, the short version is I applied and did, was lucky and did gain permanent residence. And about 1980, I gained Canadian citizenship. So the point I want to make here is that I'm, I've been a full-fledged member of Canada for almost 50 years. So when I'm speaking, I'm speaking from a position of experience as someone who has gone through a, um, a long period of study and the institutions involved. Now, you'll also hear me talk about cues. Amanda just mentioned these, this, and I define cues as gestures, hints, or invisible. And that word invisible is key when we're talking about systemic racism and unspoken established traditions that newcomers tend to miss. And you know, when I say newcomers like myself, back in 72, I've since discussed this book and shared it with Canadians who were born here and they said, what you're talking about is not that new. You know, we also miss the cues because these are woven into networks, everyday interactions, relationships, politics, and more. And so that's one way in which systemic racism really functions. And in Canada, just like the ebb and flow, there is an elusiveness to it. Hmm? At this point, though, I want to just talk a little bit about a definition of systemic racism from the politics of race that uh, Amanda mentioned, that was co-authored with Jill Vickers, whom I'll talk about a little later on. We said at the time that this concept, that means systemic racism, 
recognizes that inequality is built into institutions in ways that are often invisible, both to those who dominate and to those who are dominated. So there, that word comes up again of invisibility in systemic racism, although now I think it's very much more overt. So now to these three stages of consciousness. Now, the first one I described as white welcome. And this period lasted through my first two degrees from my BA in languages at the University of Alberta. And after I completed the master's at Carlton, folks, uh, at NIPSIA, the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs here at Carlton from 1978 to 1980. So what characterized this welcome? I was simply caught off guard. That's how I think in my naivety, I can look back and say, because who doesn't like a warm welcome? Of course, you know, in a new country and a cold to boot, Edmonton and Ottawa for winters, hey. You know, but at both universities, which is a bubble environment, I had white friends eager to include me in social gatherings, even though I would be the only one I remember. Um, but at coffee or if we would make doing a student assignment, at the U of A, my professors were all white and very supportive. So even the jobs that I held in between in Edmonton to support myself as a student, once I got the permanent residency, um, was welcoming the everyday socials and so on. And my uncle's girlfriends, of course, and everybody around us were white, same story. And to buffer that, I had a good Caribbean network. And so that I didn't really, I wasn't concerned too much with racist behavior at the time. But as I tell this story, maybe I should have been more concerned because here I'll take a minute to talk about a consciousness raising incident that ironically would resonate some 40 years later through the BLM. Now, when I left Trinidad and Tobago in 1972, the country was experiencing its own version of black power riots and unrest, similar to what was happening in the States. For those of you who want to go back to the history um, of the time that I'm talking about, and very briefly, at the same time in Canada, was, this is interesting, Canada was also in the throes of a wave of racism through riots at Sir George Williams University in Montreal, now known as Concordia, caused by claims of racism from Caribbean students. And the plot deepens because some of the foreign students involved as Sir George were Trinidadian and they were quickly deported back to Trinidad. So when I was applying for a visa this time from the Canadian embassy, there, I was advised to avoid any semblance of connection to the unrest in Trinidad if I wanted to be successful. So I did. I wore a straight hair wig to the interview, got the visa, the rest is history. So this, this, this background does tell you, though, that many of us who came to Canada at the time simply ignored that period of racism that was ex being experienced elsewhere in Canada because it was safer to do so. And I think you can already guess why. Even when I came to Nipsia, for example, in 1978 to 80, there was a bit more evidence of non-white professors, but generally not that many to make a significant increase in my awareness as happened when I came to Carlton later on. And here too, the social experiences were the same. And I think I can say safely that there were cues, but I didn't really pay attention to them. Now the next second stage was visible minority. You, and I say here, I was seen as a visible minority from 1980 to 1992, 95, sorry. This was my working phase, but so two degrees under my belt. Right after I finished at Carlton, I worked in the NGO sector in Ottawa and then also was an international development consultant for about 10 years. So interestingly enough, my first job in the NGOs was working with women and gender issues. 
And this focus emphasized the interconnection then with race. That was the first time because my international development courses, we more focus on North-South relationships and inequality and so on, and the economics and politics of it. And, but now, of course, we know a lot more. So we refer to intersectionality across all racisms. Hmm? And there was some consciousness growing at that time, but not a lot because I was busy traveling in and out of Canada for project and evaluation studies. I had a younger family and I was also helping to settle my parents and sisters who had emigrated from Trinidad and Tobago. So there was less attention paid to racism because this was also, folks, the period of the decade of multiculturalism. It was brand new and this was meant to accommodate all the various peoples in Canada. And so there was a sort of a lull, that sort of ebb that I talk about uh, in racism in Canada, kind of put you in a comfort zone that you didn't have anything to think about. But by 1992, to get more secure work, I joined CEDA as an education specialist. And in that environment, the mantra of visible minority affirmative action beat loudly. For by then, there was evidence that non-whites were simply not growing in numbers in the public sector, taking into account their increased numbers in the population. We are, after all, a democratic society. And so white workers at CEDAR, especially the men, and I don't know why at the time, informed me that I would succeed fast. I would get good jobs because I was black, I was a woman, I was a visible minority, I was educated, or they lay it on. But you know what? I was offended by the label because I had my own identity, my own qualifications. Why did I have to check this box? So for the first few jobs that I did try to get, I didn't check the box, which also included women, indigenous peoples, and people with disabilities. So we were all lumped together. But just before I left in 1995, still apply, I decided I would still try to apply. And I did finally check that box. But just guess what? Never got a job called for a job interview, and obviously no job at the time. Now the third stage and the final stage is what I talk about missing the cues, and this brings me back to Carlton. But so from 1995 to 2004, I was a doctoral candidate at McGill um, first, and then I came to Carleton to, to teach as you've already heard. But at McGill, but first at McGill, you would think that this is surely, you know, that would be a place to open my eyes. My supervisor was a woman of color, an Asian Canadian, and I took courses on her with feminism and race, but it still did not gel. So it was only when I started to teach at Carleton in 2004 that I put it together. And here are the reasons why. You know, after a lifetime in international development, well, by now I understood quality and inequality. But I came face to face with the literature on racism. And finally, it's as if all the, you know, there was a click. Everything just went click, click, click. I had to prepare lecture materials, do a lot of readings. Uh, I had to engage with the students. Amina Amanda is here. She's one of those. I had to present it orally. And I mean, of course, I had, and you hear your voice. And I think it is that listening to your voice, which many people nowadays are experiencing when they talk about this. And when you hear your voice, finally, after 30 years, this newcomer, now a Canadian, really realized you can't ignore it anymore. And some of the other reasons was actually Professor Jill Vickers, who has since retired, and she was a senior lecturer, a senior professor at the time, and she took me under her wing. Jill is white. And I also had a short connection with the late Professor Edward Prempe, the black professor, a black professor. And with Jill, we, we co-authored Politics of Race, 
because she was teaching a course on politics of race at the time, which I subsequently took over. And so in that book, which we published way back in 2012, so we were working on that since 2010. And the issues we presented there were really a blueprint for the discussion of racism that we're talking now. But it also became the inspiration for Missing the Cues. So in closing, I, um, I want to just tell you that it is ironic that the naivety that I had about racism in that first Canadian university setting back in 1972 was made fully conscious some 30 years later in another university setting. So when I say systemic racism and my own stages of consciousness, I return to the earlier definition that we talked about, that the concept recognizes that inequality is built into institutions in ways that are often invisible. And in such institu those institutions tended to be controlled mostly by the dominant group. And in this country, it's white Canadians. There, you know, there's no explanation for that. That's who we are, who have the inside track to people, networks, mentorships, pitfalls to avoid. So in my case, when I look back, I miss the institutional cues all along the way. Now, people would say, well, what's wrong with that? You've done fine. But you, when you miss these cues, I mean, I think you're missing out on a lot of the that your, your role as a citizen has to offer. And these cues were rarely shared with me, hardly ever shared with me unless I asked what to ask. And even so, the answers were vague until I probed, persisted, and eventually knocked on an open door. So I think here we will continue the conversation. Um, and that was just a sort of a way of introducing myself and what I call, you know, my conscious unconsciousness or conscious consciousness, however we, we want to take it. That's great. Thank you, Dr. Isaac. Um, so for the, the Q&A conversational portion that you mentioned, uh, I've kind of constructed three different themes based on what grad students in the department were asking and wanted to hear you talk about. So the themes are representation, experiences, and community. Okay. So the first question is about representation. And you talked about um, sometimes being the only black person, the only person of color in these spaces that you occupied uh, at two different universities. So could you speak a little bit to your, your consciousness, your feelings about uh, representation on campus at the U of A and then when you came to Nipsia and being at Carleton? Yeah, you know, this is an interesting um, topic. And I mean, representation is at the real core of everything that I taught over those 11 years at Carlton. Who matters, how you matter, when you matter. I mean, this is really the substance of um, um, uh, representation. And it's, it's, it's uh, what in my introduction to politics of race. But you know, the thing is, as I said, this, this unconscious, this consciousness that I had, and I was thinking about this this morning, you can be unconscious to conscious, if that makes sense. And I think that's the stage that I was at at the U of A, because as I said, I came in confidently and I don't wanna take up all the time talking about this because I can go on for hours, but there was a, a, a naivety there. I think that's all I can say about that um, aspect on campus because you know your life is at stake. I wasn't gonna come here to make trouble um, based on what I just said about Trinidad. Um, and I didn't know anybody, and certainly my uncles, I was the first young woman to come out of the family to Canada in those days. Um, and so no, no sense at all of anything being wrong. As I said, my welcome was just beautiful. When I came to Nipsia, 
um, that was uh, a little bit different, but still, again, I was not looking for anything more than a bit of a community. And there were many international students at that time because that's the, NIPSIA is the, 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 the place of international affairs. I always say, I put a plug in for my past colleagues, my former colleagues rather, that we built NIPSIA. So uh, those were really fun times. But again, we did not really think of it in those days, those ways. Certainly I didn't. And I was at a, I was at a shorter time at Carlton than then and I was at the, the NIPSIA. But Amanda, bring me back to this point if I don't, if I stray off a little bit and I'm not answering you fully because there's so much of it in my head here. But the thing is, the reason I can speak to you today, folks, is because I was a student. And when you're a student, you see issues one way. Obviously, you're on the outside. But when I came back as, um, as an instructor and an adjunct research professor, which is really just to help you get your feet into the university. And when I came back finally to teach as an instructor, that's when the whole notion of consciousness really emerged. You know, and I think for a lot of us, very few people um, really have that opportunity to be on the one side a student uh, be looking in, out, looking in. And then I was came into the inside and looked and then realized from the literature that I was looking at, the talks that I was having with the students, that representation was really and truly um, something I had missed. And that, but that I was now sharing that missing with students via the courses and via over the 11 years that I was there. But that I saw myself up until that time as an instrument of representation, no. Um, I think people who are coming into Canada now probably have a much better idea because there is this the whole technology um, that um, is, I said the word viral before, but I know it's virtual. But the technology helps you, I think, understand a little bit more of the context. But that's when I really uh, understood the notion of, of representation. And from the feedback I've got with the students over the years, yeah, yeah, I think we had a real discussion about really who matters, how we matter, when we matter, and so on. And um, having you today is also an example of that notion be sinking into students' consciousness. Thank you. And thank you for uh, speaking as well to your, your time as an instructor and how it evolved from be your, your consciousness evolved from your time as a student to your time as an instructor. So hearing how it kind of clicked into place uh, mm -hmm. is really interesting. On the subject of experiences, um, so your time at Carleton I noticed spanned two of your stages of consciousness. So I'm wondering what changed uh, during your time at Carleton and when you, between when you were a student at Carleton, when you came back to teach and what stayed the same? Yeah, um, I think that is again, something that you as uh, your colleagues after this can really perhaps take what I say, but I was on campus for about one year, you know, 78 to 1980, one year as a student. And so the type of organizations and discussions that you're having now, we didn't have it then. I don't even think that at NIPSIA it was even um, a topic, certainly from the courses that I took. So in that year, I, there was no consciousness raising for me in this sense, of course, in international development, where I 
earned my wings. That was not, that was easy. Um, and the student and Trudeau was there and so Canada was really all about uh, international development aid and so on. Um, so from then, th that time, there still wasn't for me that type of consciousness. I can't remember any rebellion on campus. Um, but when I came here, when I certainly, by the time I got back to the university and uh, I looked around and one of the first things I did notice when I joined the department, I was lucky to get an instructor's position again with the help of Professor Vickers. One of the first thing I did notice though was a lack of black people like myself in the department. There were people of color in the department who were supposed to be visible minorities. There was another um, senior um, lecturer, uh, professor, and he, I met him and we did have conversations. And Edward Prempe is really who helped me um, teach his courses as he was passing on. And then when um, I rewrote the book, because he also had worked with Professor Vickers and the two of them had really put that book together. And then I came along and joined the process. But it was then that I realized, you know, look, this is a really different world from then when I was a student, you know, and that consciousness really kind of just stayed with me. I did have discussions with, with Professor Vickers. It was a one-on-one -on -one type of conversation because I was not in the full faculty per se as an instructor, you're part of the teaching core, you teach a lot. And one of the things, Amanda, that I really want to, to bring out is this whole notion of the group mentality and lumping all of us together in a category called people of color and visible minority, because hey, listen to what. When I thought I would probably try to get onto the um, faculty, um, and this is history of, of my role there, and I did speak with one of the labor persons and I said, well, hey, you know, I'm not, I'm not seeing, there are not too many people like me on campus, on this department by now, there should be, you know. And they said to me, look, um, our numbers of visible minority people on campus exceed the 50%, but they don't look like, all look like you. And that was an eye opener for me. How could I deal with that? You know, so I just backed off, you know, um, and just kept on teaching because it provided a job for me. But it was then, and I, I, I hope I'm clear about this, that I realized that those kinds of representation in um, institution really goes by the nature of the institution. And um, the, the, the um, experience in a university is it's based on the hiring, it's based on the um, dynamic of the, the department, whether there is an interest in this, whether there are professors who are willing to take on the courses, because that's how I started to teach it. And so there's a whole lot of issues. And this is when we talk about system. The system is developed in a way so that even with perhaps with the best intentions, and I leave to that my colleagues not to send, you know, not to kill me for this, but with the best intentions, if there is not really a vision and a purpose to really um, bring more of these kinds of issues into the department, what you have is if not a direct focus on these kinds of issues as Professor and um, Prempe and um, Sikas did, is that you teach the courses. So you'll find most of your courses, I'm sure you'll find most of your courses in this department or elsewhere that have a focus on race, have a, con a thing on race, but that it, if it's not that specialized uh, or it's not called for when there is a hiring or uh, a so or um, you know, however they bring people in, then you find that that kind of focus with all the best wishes 
of the um, university or so is not part of it. So that in a way was my understanding of how representation works or does not work, you know, and that is a very difficult thing to overcome. And I think I hope when I share this with grad students, if we have time at the end, you know, some of the ways in which we can begin to really understand how that um, can, how, how I suppose we can position ourselves better to, um, if not exploit that, work to balance the playing field. That's great, thank you. Um, so I wanted to ask, with regards to like missing the cues, I know you go into this and there's a specific like education chapter in your book where you talk about specific cues that you missed, but can you, can you share with us even just a few uh, of the kinds of cues that you missed in your education and your teaching? Uh, yeah, just cues. Yeah, some of these things, yeah. I mean, um, and I'm not just putting a plug into get the book, guys. Of course, have a look at it. You can get to my website. But, you know, I'm going to speak because I was a student and I loved the university environment. Let me say, let me put myself into some what I missed. And what I missed was the courage. I really missed the courage to engage with white professors. And this is interesting because you know, and I do thank the department for giving me this time to reflect. A lot of us don't get, this is a rare opportunity to um, do something like this. Because I, I realized, frankly, Amanda, that my, my confidence started to decline the longer I stayed in Canada. Isn't that something? So I came in really gung-ho, did the first degree with all the ups and downs, did the second degree, but by the time I, start, I finished the, the second degree, I found that I was really starting to not be confident of what I could do. So that courage that I mentioned, um, and I do have a list in the book, which I, is no point getting into, but I missed that, that courage. I didn't really, it didn't stay with me. I don't know why, I don't know why. Maybe the environment was overwhelmingly white and all of the evidence I saw of opportunity and advancement and my professors and so on were white. So I lost my courage. Um, and that's something that I tell students that now, especially those of you born in Canada, it should not be. And I didn't understand too uh, that going into grad study was I was entering a world of privilege. I didn't understand I was going to a world of privilege and how that takes shape and understanding that that's where you know, the body system works. Um, I mean, I wrote a book, so now I'm, you know, described as a published author. I mean, how does the mind begin to understand these things as a newcomer uh, when you're fighting for your own, uh, you know, personal survival and family and everybody else is looking at you to lead? And so um, that understanding that world of privilege was something I didn't understand. So while I heard it, I could hear people talking about getting jobs. And in fact, I met and heard a lot about a lot of them, especially my white colleagues and some of the black guys too, you know, getting jobs. And I'm saying, what did I miss? You see, so I misunderstanding that that was where the opportunities to do better, to enlarge yourself, to go to fly as high as you as you want. Um, by the way, I have used the word fly and I heard it was trending last night. So please excuse me. <laughs> anyway, but to go as uh, to go as high as you want, where you want. I didn't understand that world of privilege. And I tell you guys, if you're listening to this, 
that once you pass that undergraduate study, this is where the opportunities really open up for you and you need to do that. And I suppose in that sense, really finding ways, even from your undergraduate, to build a connection with your um, supervisors, because I think that these are the people who are really going to help you understand how privilege takes shape. But of course, as I said, the, there is more via the media and Facebook and all of these spaces that have reduced the silences, because that's the other thing, eh? the silences that you get when it comes to privilege. It's not talked about a lot. And that's where the invisibility comes in. And then I think here in terms of the whole notion of us as women, gender relations, and I have to say this because I, that was a big part of my specialty. How men and women work on, on the university or any institution is different. And I, again, I think I was probably shy to approach my male um, supervisors. That's all. I, I don't think there was any woman at the time in Nipsia or even over in political science with whom I might have bonded. It was only when I met Professor Vickers, but of course my supervisor when I got to McGill, you know, but by then I was a mature woman. So I think gender relations plays a big role in this business of systemic racism. How do you break down those barriers? Um, um, you know, I, I think we are all adults and we do understand that how men and women re, uh, relate in an environment that's so intense and so personal is going to be a challenge comfortably. And that's something too that I also missed. So these are the cues that I missed. These are broader cues, but I think, um, and I haven't even written this in the book per se, but this is really what I would say that I missed in terms of that individual journey. I think that's really helpful. And I think you did a great job of kind of uh, sharing some of those cues with us without giving away the contents of the book. That's great. Thank you. Um, you talked a little bit about courage and how your courage to approach um, your white professors, your male professors evolved and changed in your time in Canada. Um, so I think you kind of alluded to it, but do you have any reflections on imposter syndrome, that feeling of inadequacy, feeling like you're unqualified as a grad student, um, and how that plays out in, in terms of like sometimes being the only black person or person of color in the room? Yeah, yeah. Um, so right now, we're talking about the more academic side, eh? because that's how I'm tracing this stage of consciousness, because that's really where I found myself in, in, um, in, in this uh, um, time um, in our world, in our history and in Canada. But that feeling of inadequacy came to do, has to do with the courage I mentioned. And yeah, I, I have to say that, and I've heard other people say this to women especially, and I have to tell you, after I was finishing, when I was finishing the master's, I thought, I wonder if I could do a PhD. And the, because, and then I pulled back. This was before those 10 years of working in international development. And I pulled back because there was no one to really encourage me. Um, and uh, I heard the, the male students, by the way, black and white, talking about going on to do a PhD and getting published and so on. And at the time I felt so inadequate, me, I couldn't write. How could I write a PhD? Because yeah, I kept thinking that a PhD was some paper thing, you know, that only people who could write could do it. And listen, I mean, I'm a writer, you know, I loved writing, I did well, I had to work hard on some of the subjects, but I was feeling, to tell you the truth, very inadequate. And um, that inadequacy stayed with me 
um, until I decided, I realized that I could really do a PhD. And that was after I had done all that work in consulting. We had written all these reports, traveled, talked to people, and seen that I was reading a lot of stuff that wasn't very good and that I could do it. But I also got rid of that thing hanging over my head that a PhD is not just, it's not this glorified mystical thing, which many people make you, at the time made you think it was, but really was a place where I, as a lover of books, I could get in there and I wanted to study more the relationship between Canada and the Caribbean in terms of education and educational policy and the, the politics of it and so on. And so it was, took me 10 years. So by now I'm in my late forties going on to do my um, doctorate you know, and so you begin to see that if you want to get into academia, you're really behind the, the egg ball, especially if you're competing with younger people. But you know, that business of being inadequate, um, that's, I don't know if that's the same thing you mean to want me to address in terms of imposter syndrome. We could probably tease out this imposter syndrome a little bit, but certainly not feeling after I did my master's that I was in any way ready that I could do it. And by the way, since um, socially as well, they were accused, but I'm not bringing that up today. But I also didn't get a whole lot of um, support from personal friends, you know. Um, I didn't get a whole lot of encouragement. My family, yes, because they knew who I was, you know, and that I love to study. But there were a lot of people saying, why are you doing this? You know, you have a good job. I can't do that. So you see, it, it becomes a very lonely path. Um, yeah, it has become a rather lonely journey, but I survived and here I am, I hear the two of you. So if I have any doubt about, you know, really forging ahead, um, you know, you and the invitation from Professor Malloy are proof that um, these things do work, even if it looks as if we take a, a longer road to get here. Thank you. Um... So I'm going to move to our last question and our last topic, which is community. And you mentioned that you didn't have the kind of encouragement to do the PhD from your friends or from um, professors, I guess, those relationships that are so important. So I know from our previous conversations that you spent a lot of time um, like talking to students in office hours and, and encouraging them and building community and making connections. So I was wondering, drawing from that um, and anything, anything else you'd like to include, do you have yeah. any advice for grad students around the topic of grad school more broadly or building community, building those connections? Yeah, yeah. You know what, Amanda, and um, we have been talking um, before and you know me in the class and um, I see this simply from my years of experience. It's not going to be easy to build this kind of community. Let, if you're in Toronto, maybe, where there is a wider groundswell of people, populations of course approaching 50% visible minorities now, or people of color. And so a lot of it has to do really with the environment that you're in. Uh, Ottawa and Edmonton, I think, were where the population of, of color is smaller. Of course, more larger populations, white populations. To what extent that really is um, impacting um, the community of color in these universities? I think that's for you and other colleagues to really pull together. But certainly, um, I found a community with my students. 
for 11 years uh, and many of them have kept in touch with me and have gone on to do really great work and have talked about the fact that it was helpful to have me talk, speak with them, going on and mentoring them. So if anything I take away, and I think that's gold, that there was a community of students. The community, of course, with, the, um, with, with my colleagues was different. And I think I've described why. If, and this is where grad students, you have to understand if you want to be in academia, but there are other jobs that you can get outside of academia with a doctorate, all right? But it doesn't matter which environment you're in, whether here or outside. But in academia, especially if you're thinking about going on to, to, to this kind of job, number one, you really have to start applying earlier. But the thing is, you, the, the university departments are specialized places. People come in, they've got their specialty, they, they go to work, they form their, their groups, their bubbles, you go to conferences together, you publish, you did this, you did that and the other. And if you don't understand that sort of area of privilege and exclusion as an instructor, because an instructor you teach, well, that's what I did. I thought, I thought, I thought, I thought. Enjoyed it remarkably. And with Professor Vigas, I had a chance to go to a couple of conferences. But that's where that notion of community for, in my life is still a work in progress. And again, funny enough how we're having this discussion today. It wasn't there for me. Quite frankly, it wasn't there for me because I was not part of any particular specialty. I didn't have the title of associate professor or um, for the professor. And so one has to understand, I think what I want to say clearly to you guys is you have to understand the hierarchical structure in any institution, okay? And, but if you understand that you can, you can negotiate these um, pathways of privilege, then um, you will find yourself, even if you're an instructor, knowing that this is an entry into, but it is not the only place to stand still. Um, and in that sense, to me, I didn't really have a community because I was looking forward, as I might have mentioned to you, um, chatting and talking and bonding and buddying with all of these people who had ideas, who have wonderful ideas, they're brilliant people. That's what I found out in the department, but I was not one of them. So and having said that, for us in Canada, I think it's really a challenge. And I was thinking, for example, like Howard University in the States. When you go to Howard, I mean, you enter the door and there will of course be the dynamics of politics within any institution. But once you walk in the door, you know where you are. You know, if you need to ask a questions, there's, if this door doesn't open, there's 10 other people who look like you or sound like you. And I see, you know, we have the, the, the evidence of Felicia Richard and, and Chadwick and so on, who's, I would encourage people to listen to his valedictory speech. Um, it was brilliant, but we don't have that here. And I don't know how in Canada, whether that's ever a possibility, given that we have multiculturalism as our policy. But um, I would say that understanding that um, you have to um, not just have it as a burden, but to understand that if you want to pursue higher knowledge, higher learning, or just simply exploit the darn good opportunities that an education gives you in this country, you have to really understand that for people like us, we have to build connections. And I suppose I would close by saying to, 
it's also useful to look around the campus. I do know that there are colleagues of color, but again, there are individuals, one here, two there, um, and this notion of people of color is, is, is misleading. It's, it's really misleading, and um, where everybody here has to fight for their own professional um, um, well-being, so that uh, you know it's um, you don't really have time for this. But it's coming. This this movement is not going to go away. It's coming. It's coming. And I love what you say that, that building community is is still a work in progress. I think it's a lifelong project, probably. Um, yeah. And that starting in university is just the tip of the iceberg, right? It, it is, it is. This, is. this was important for me, I think, to realize that um, it doesn't stop simply because you did not have, you know, that type of experience you were interested in. But I worked with Professor Vickers. We've got the book, Missing the Cues. Um, you know, I, I, I have been enriched by the process, but um, disenfranchised personally in another way. Um, but I would um, say that, um, and I have to admit that um, having these kinds of discussions um, is my contribution to the ongoing work that we have to do. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate your being here. Thank you for sharing your time, your experiences and expertise with us. I think it's really valuable and I hope that our viewers have enjoyed watching it. Um, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Annette Isaac and her work, uh, you can do so at AnnetteIsaac.ca. If you'd like to purchase her book, Missing the Cues, Tales of a Newcomer's Life in Canada, you can do so by sending her an email at aisaac01 at gmail.com. Thank you very much, Dr. Isaac, and enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Good luck, everyone.